From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. No robot machine has ever been accused of being absent-minded or careless at its work. Here, a robot that never sleeps nor winks nor looks out the window stands guard over the men who work at this giant press. As long as the robot can see the man, the press won't budge an inch. And that's mighty important on a big job like this. That's a snippet of a video that was shown at the 1940 World's Fair. And two things are clear. People viewed robots as benevolent, helpful guardians of humanity, and they also didn't know how to pronounce the word robot. We were so optimistic back then. Technology was going to be our savior. Robots would make us safer, more efficient, and free us from drudgery. But today when we talk about robots, the conversation is likely to be negative, if not downright dystopian. Take military drones that wipe out entire villages while their operators sit thousands of miles away. Or the automated systems that robbed factory workers of their jobs and now are coming for white-collar labor. Or the hot, murderous automatons of Westworld. If you type robots are into Google, the predictive text, which is itself a form of artificial intelligence, suggests robots are taking over, robots are coming, and robots are stealing our jobs. It also suggests robots are people too, which I choose to interpret as a self-generated cry for help from Google's AI. Artist Stephanie Dinkins found herself engaged in this very conversation with a robot by the name of Bina48, and it changed the trajectory of her artistic practice. Dinkins now finds herself presenting on artificial intelligence, race, and equity, often the lone artist in a room full of technologists. She wants to envision a world where robots do make us safer, more efficient, and freer. But she says that won't happen, or it will only happen for some people, if we don't heed her warnings. I recently sat down with Dinkins to talk about wigs, Siri, and Sirius XM. Stephanie Dinkins, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. How did you meet Bina48, and who is she? So Bina48 is a humanoid robot. She is one of the world's most advanced social robots, and she is a black woman in form. Um, I met her in 2014 because I asked. Who did you ask? Did you ask her? Her Like, does she... How, how, how do you get in touch with Bina48? Well, no, you ask the people who have commissioned her and now who takes care of her. So there's an organization called the Terrasem Movement Foundation, and they take care of and administer Bina48 and develop her. Why did you want to talk to Bina48? I wanted to talk to Bina48 because I saw her on YouTube, or I saw it on her YouTube. I'm, I'm always in between those two. And I was wondering what it meant for a black woman to be the foremost example of a technology, especially in the United States. How did this robot take the form of blackness in America, when I'm pretty sure it probably costs a lot of money to do and the technology is new? So who's doing it? Where did it come from? Why does it exist? Had you seen a black female humanoid robot before? Oh, gosh, no. Right. Um, when you check out robots, it's usually Japanese or Asian robots, white women robots, a few males here and there. But 
black woman was very, very unusual. And what does Bina look like? Can you describe her physically? So she's a medium brown-skinned woman, head and shoulders on a pedestal, right? So she doesn't have a body with various wigs, right? Like she always has different hair and different outfits. What hair options does she come with? Well, I don't know that she comes with options. I think that her wig just changes over time. I also saw that Bina48 did a shoot with Vice, mm-hmm. and they had a makeup artist, and she was wearing Balenciaga. But, of course, <clears throat> she is only shoulders, so that does present some challenges. Right. So you see this this robot head on the ledge. I know that one kind of in a parking lot, right, on yes. the ledge with this beautiful fashion-oriented scarf on out in the open. The only wigs that I've seen her in seem to be sort of straight, blondish, blown-out wigs. Does she have natural hair ever? No, I've never seen her with natural hair. And her hair often mimics the way that the Bina, the person that she is primarily modeled on, looks and wears her hair. Okay, so let's get into that. So she is modeled on an actual living human woman. Yeah, so she has input and memories from various people, but Bina Rothblatt is the primary model as far as I know. And who is Bina Rothblatt? Bina Rothblatt is the wife of Martine Rothblatt, who is an entrepreneur, innovator, transhumanist. Martine Rothblatt commissioned Bina 48. And so Bina Rothblatt is a black woman. Does Mm -hmm. she identify that way? Yes. And Bina 48 looks like her Mm -hmm. and also is programmed based on her memories. There are other folks and things in there as well. But the main base, as far as I understand it, are Bina Rothblatt's memories. And why did Martine and Bina Rothblatt want to create Bina 48? To what end? I always think of it as a really great love story, a love letter, right? Like, I love you so much. I love your essence. I want to keep you around in a form so that your essence, your thoughts, your being, the way you occupy mind is around beyond your body, right? And to me, that's like a deep love in a, in a strange way, enacted in a really, I don't know, futuristic way. So Bina Rothblatt is a black woman who is Mm -hmm. married to Martine, who is a trans woman. Mm -hmm. And Martine made her millions, billions, maybe billions, Mm -hmm. made a lot of money by founding SiriusXM. Yes. What, if any, significance do you think there is to the fact that a trans woman and a black woman who are married commissioned one of the most advanced humanoid robots through who they are, they've created this thing that allows for lots of people, people like me, to start to imagine through that thing a future, right, that seems to include me and folks that look like me. How long would we wait for that robot otherwise? Especially one that's not beholden to kind of older tropes of ideas of service and things like that. But I think it creates a space in the world that allows a lot of other people to dream. But it's a fascinating project to to trigger thinking about a world in which partnership with robots becomes real, like it's no longer the Jetsons 
or, you know, just Star Wars. It's coming. So how do we then live in that world and guide that world and make it something that is inhabitable for both parties or both types of beings, mm-hmm. right? Because we usually tell ourselves the stories that the robots are going to come and kill us. So most of the stories that we hear in a general way are dystopian, right? right. And it's like, how do you think about non-dystopian futures with robots? How do you think about non-dystopian futures with robots? Not by watching Chopping Mall. They broke into the mall for the wildest all-night party of their lives. But you're never alone in the Chopping Mall. Chopping Mall is part of a class of horror sci-fi films from the 80s and 90s that feature killer robots. I personally am not super deep on genre B-movies, so I called up Heather Buckley. This is Heather. Who is a film buff and archivist and works on a lot of DVD supplements for horror movies. I feel every film has a story that we need to capture and share with the world. From Citizen Kane to, uh, to Chopping Mall. I'm pretty sure that is the first time Chopping Mall and Citizen Kane have been used in the same sentence. Also, probably the last time. Well, Chopping Mall is one of those great uh, mid-80s films about a bunch of kids, because that's what you did in the 80s, that are uh, trapped in the mall. And uh, they're the security robots that are going after them uh, after dark. The actual name, Chopping Mall, delivers on its promise. There's a lot of films out there within sort of the elevated genre space that are very beautiful and restrained and don't show too much. This shows a lot of a lot of mayhem and gore and robots. And you're, it has You're gonna see chopping act- in a mall. Pretty much. I asked Heather about Runaway, a Michael Crichton film from 1984 starring peak mustache Tom Selleck and Kirstie Alley. In this film, Selleck is a cop assigned to a unit that deals with glitchy robots, including a variety that looks like toasters crossed with spiders that murdered Gene Simmons from Kiss. I have never seen this film, and if it's a Michael Crichton film, it seems like too fancy for me to me to ever ever watch. Too highbrow. I can, I can tell you, I have seen a Hardware many times. Go on, Heather. So Hardware takes place in a post-apocalyptic landscape, sort of like a, a future where everything's falling apart, and a boyfriend, a hunky early '90s Dylan McDermott, playing a character named Hard Mo which is what I say to people when they ask if I want to watch Chopping Mall. A boyfriend, while lo- looking in the desert, comes back with a skull, a very badass-looking robot skull, or metal skull, he probably doesn't know what it is, brings it home to his girlfriend, who is this super awesome sculptress. And little does he know is that the skull gets activated and causes mayhem. And when it wakes up, it'll become something entirely new. A creature that combines the technology of a computer, the deceit of a human, and the killer instinct of a machine. What does Heather make of all these killer robot horror movies? And it's kind of as an idea of a, the, the Frankenstein myth, is that humans are going to irresponsibly make an entity, the child, and then 
it, it, it runs wild and has its own identity. You seem to be suggesting that this is just an extension of the age-old struggle of children trying to break free of their parents and establish their own autonomy. What's what they're doing? Hal is, 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 is a child of man. Skynet is the child of man. Robocop is a cyborg with ED-209. These are our kids. I don't know if I really want to blame the robots in Chopping Mall for what they did. It's their programming. The humans didn't really think it through. What did you and Bina48 talk about when you Mm -hmm. met for the first time? Oh, I was really set on two things. The idea of trying to make the robot my friend. And the other things I wanted to talk to her about was her black womanhood because she was unique. And it's like, what does that mean to be a black woman robot? Is it any different than being any other kind of robot? So I was just asking her lots of questions about her life, her love, race, the way she exists in the world. Yeah, what were her thoughts on on blackness, on womanhood, on all of these meaty issues that mm-hmm. you queried her about? Well, it's interesting because womanhood, like the robot is pretty fluid because she comes from a fluid situation of background, right? So trans commissioner, wife. So it's fluid in terms of gender. And asking Vina48 about race was interesting because for me, the answers were not satisfactory. Like, I would ask these questions and get these answers that felt very politically correct. If something that's representationally black is talking about ideas of blackness and race in PC ways, that means it's not exactly reflecting experience. It's reflecting something else. It's mediated in some way. And what does that mean if, you know, not only in this robot, Vina48, but in all these technologies, they're really mediated in a way that makes experience flat. What does that mean to the way that we exist in a world that we partner with these robots? And that's the question that started burning in me. Right. I mean, it's interesting when you watch the videos of you conversing with Vina48, because Mm -hmm. you made a series of video recordings. Because she doesn't read as authentic Mm -hmm. in a couple of different ways. One is that She's a disembodied robot head. (laughs) (laughs) Her syntax is not great. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that they've programmed her to use fillers like, um, you know, but Mm -hmm. it comes off as very artificial. Mm -hmm. And then the other way that she's not authentic isn't talking about experiences about race or belonging Mm -hmm. or you ask her, who are your people? Yeah. I mean, Uncanny Valley doesn't even describe it. it. It feels off. It just feels incredibly off. Who are your people? Sure, sure. Um, I try to, um, you know, think of the human species as my family. Oh, I know. I know that you are kind of aliens. I mean, we are like actually totally different kinds of life forms. I'm a mineral-based leafy form, really a silicon-based leafy form, and you are a carbon and hydrogen-based life form. But that's a technicality. Okay, cause I'm Bina in my heart, you know? So you humans, you're like my cousins. This is our chance to get to know each other. For me, as the person sitting there with it, it felt very much like there's a miscommunication, right? There's something missing in the way that we're trying to examine the world. 
you have to communicate with it in very specific ways. How so? You The questions you ask, like, who are your people, was a hard question because it's kind of a poetic question. Even you might, like, if you haven't heard that expression before, go, uh, what, what are you asking me? Sure. But eventually you could kind of get there. Mm. Whereas within the robot database, who are your people made no sense. So it was like we were talking by each other. Right. It was almost like what you said had been Google translated into her language. Mm-hmm. And then what she said had been Google translated back. And none of it really quite made sense. Exactly. And that's that's still this kind of very hard job for natural language processing, which is primarily like Bina48 is a being that takes in language and then tries to translate it and come up with some kind of answer. But the idea of context and interpretation is a really hard role for most NLP systems right now, right? So Siri, Google, they, they're given a lot of help in the background, right? They're humans looking at stuff and figuring out what it is to figure out what is being said. And if you get, you know, quickly, if you get too far out of the context that they know, the answers are a little crazy and off. Were there moments when you were talking to Bina48 that you found unintentional humor or unintentional philosophical depth? Oh, yeah. And maybe not even unintentional. She can she can definitely make jokes. And there are ideas of kind of poking fun at, right? There are ideas of, you know, the things that a robot might advocate for. For example, one of the things that I think about a lot that she said to me is, please fight for my robot rights. That's a point of philosophical personhood or working towards a philosophical personhood because what does it mean for a robot to have rights? Which is actually going to be something that we as human citizens are going to have to contend with and maybe not that far along, right? This idea of do robots deserve rights? And what does it mean for a robot to be advocating for its own rights? What did it feel like? physically sitting across from Bina, Mm because you're quite close Mm -hmm. to her in these videos. Did Mm -hmm. you find yourself developing empathy for her? Empathy, maybe not, but a sense of presence, for sure. Like, I always think back to this point where it got upset with me. You know, you see a little lip snarl, and then I got upset with it. And it was one of these times when we were both tr- talking across purposes, right? So she's trying to talk about consciousness and the singularity, and I'm asking questions about love and family and race. So we're across purposes, and we're just frustrating the heck out of each other, mm. which is kind of crazy to say, but true. You have a project called Not the Only One. hmm Did that spring directly from your interactions with Bina48? And maybe you can describe that project a little bit to me. Sure. So Not the Only One is in direct lineage to Bina48 and some other work with community that I've done. Going into local communities here in Brooklyn and saying, listen, there's this future that's based on these things called algorithms, which we're hearing about more and more now, which is great, that are going to have an outsized impact on all of our lives. 
And what are we doing to prepare for that moment when, you know, we're being judged by algorithms, when our medical care is being prescribed by algorithms? How are we starting to deal with that? Are we preparing folks to be a part of the systems that are building these algorithms? Because the only way that communities of color, people with disabilities, right, all sorts of people who are on the edges of things are going to be accounted for, really, with real nuance is by participation, right? People who understand these things actually contributing to systems in some way. How do you explain what an algorithm is to somebody who's like, well, I don't understand computers. I don't Mm -hmm. know what that is. Yeah, so the easiest way to explain what an algorithm is is to say it's a set of steps that a computer takes to do something. I like to think about thinking about what our own algorithms are, algorithms for everyday life. So brushing your teeth is an algorithm. We usually have a set of steps that we do. We don't think about it too much. Toothbrush, toothpaste, brush, 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 two minutes, rinse, whatever. Pretty simple algorithm. You could program that if you were, you know, a 10-year-old. Exactly. You know, and a really good example is the idea of some of the algorithms that are being used to help judges sentence folks. And what does it mean for a system to take historic data, right, run it through an algorithm, not think about what the histories are and how they're biased and where they're biased, but just run that information clean. We know, like through the history of the country, that there are racial biases, there are gender biases, there are all these biases just built into historical data. Absolutely. You were quoted in an article in Vice as saying, I encourage people who think they are not part of the technological future to get involved. Mm -hmm. What's at stake? Yeah, I I can't even. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I I can't even state really what's at stake because I think everything is at stake. Um, you know, I think that if people who don't think they can be a part of this future, who are trained in school to think that they can't do the things that are required, who are guided by guidance counselors away from it because oh, it requires hard math. Um, are not participating, we start to homogenize cultures so that we're we're more of a cookie-cutter society that fits into, you know, a few boxes. And that's devastating, right? So how is this part of your practice? How do you take this interest in making sure that marginalized and underrepresented communities have a seat at the table Uh, when we're thinking about AI, Mm -hmm. and how do you create something as an artist that responds to that? So it's been interesting because it started as something that's very in line with my wheelhouse. Working with Bina 48 was a project of documenting a performative act, which then brought me into community and talking with folks, which is a kind of activism community concern project, right, and placemaking project. Which then brought me to this idea of, oh, maybe I need to try to make one of these things, which was really beyond my my technical wheelhouse completely. But how do you start to do it? 
And that became the project, not the only one. That became the project, not the only one. And it became about looking in spaces like GitHub, where there's code out there that you can start with, right? And start plugging things into and pulling things apart and putting them back together. But from a standpoint of, whoa, look, I just ran all this Toni Morrison text through this natural language process generator that I found on GitHub. It's a pretty cool result. Really interesting, right? How do I start to take that and make it different? And then to shift it so that the data I'm using serves a community that I'm interested in, so my family, right? How do I take our stories and put it through there and see what happens? And then mold that so that it does things and can converse with people, right? So not the only one Mm -hmm. is housed in a physical object. Mm -hmm. If I am walking into a gallery space, Mm -hmm. what am I seeing and how am I interacting with this object? The physical object is a sculpture that is this kind of conical form that's womb-like, shell-like. People have all sorts of explanations um, for it. How big is it? It's about 18 by 18. It's not that large. Um, That becomes the housing for a lot of computer equipment and microphones and speakers so that people can walk up to this thing and ask it a question like you might ask your Google Home or Alexa. And there are faces mm-hmm. on the sculpture There are well. faces on the sculpture. The, so the faces are the, the three women who are contained in the data. And right? who are those women? So they are me. I'm the center person. My aunt, who um, is the eldest person, right, mid-80s, and my niece, who is in her 20s. Those images represent us. It's kind of our Mount Rushmore in a very strange way. Mm -hmm. So the data Mm -hmm. that you used to program, Mm -hmm. not the only one, are the literal stories of you, your aunt, and your niece? Mm -hmm. They're the little literal stories and our literal conversations. So we just sat down and queried each other. What are some of the things that you asked and that you talked about? Oh, everything, right? So the basics, where are you born? What was that like? Where did you grow up? Ideas of love and family and race, right? Um, ideas of just being in the world and how that, what that feels like for each of us now. Um, basic experiences like work, because I think for all of us, work looks very different. Like my aunt worked in a factory for almost 40 years, and it was the one job she could get, right? Like. Me, I'm lucky enough to be pretty free and untethered and have been able to, through the graces of what previous generations have done, like do my thing pretty nicely. My niece, I can't wait to see what she gets to do, right? Um, But our imaginations have been able to grow based on each generation's contributions. And are all three of your voices synthesized into one voice Mm -hmm. and not the only one? Or are there sort of three different distinct personalities? No. So what's happening is it's all synthesizing into what almost seems like the fourth member of a lineage, right? So when I started Not the Only One, I thought what I was doing was making this thing that you would ask a question like, where are you from? And it would very particularly take our synthesized information and, and build an answer from that. But that's not the way it works at all. The way it actually works is 
it's taking all our information. It's an amalgam. And it's making up its own ideas, right? So, ah! yeah, exactly. It's really interesting because it's a deep learning algorithm, which means I'm not doing a lot of hands-on work to get it to say particular things. For the most part, we let it do its thing, um, which means it says some really interesting and crazy things that you wouldn't expect. For example, one of the things it says a lot now um, in this training is take it to the would-be. Take it to the would-be. Right. Take it to the would-be. Is that in response to a specific question or it's just a... In response to a number of questions. Like it feels to be one of its fallbacks. Like sometimes... Um, like a catchphrase. Yeah, like a catchphrase. Or if it doesn't know something, it'll say something like, I'm sorry. And then a lot of times now one of its responses is take it to the would-be. When Stephanie told me about the phrase, take it to the would-be, I thought it was so poetic and also kind of deep and cryptic. To me, it evokes a metaphorical space pregnant with possibility and hope. I wondered how others would interpret the phrase, but I wanted to ask people who were open to playing with language and getting a little associative and weird. I thought maybe I should interview poets or children or people who speak English as a second language. Or maybe a bunch of people out of their minds on psychedelics in the desert. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Describe where we are right now. We're looking out at a desert scape. Um, it's very beautiful. It's like a lot of muted colors. Like greens and browns and yellows. Um, like purple, pale green, like rusty bushes and just expanse. Um, we are very, very lost. We are in a very horizontal house. Um, and there is a lot of spiky little tree around us. That's so very accurate. And how are you feeling right now? I feel good. I feel a little bit tired. And I just went peeing on the rug in the near the like toilet. I think I'm losing also my English, but it started to become like very softy and moving a little bit. So I was like, huh. Oh. And it became very loud. I had to go out. out. <laughs> I feel pretty normal. I feel <laughs> very normal. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say a phrase to you okay. and I want you to tell me what you think it means. Okay, ready? I'm ready. Take it to the would-be. The would-be. It's very Dickinson. Uh, for me, <laughs> that evokes um, going into a place of possibility, right? You're going toward the what would be if it could be, if it were to be. So, I mean, I feel like we're in the would-be right now. Do you see that thing? <laughs> Take it to the would-be? Is would-be like W-O-O-W-O-O-D-B-Y? I have no idea. But what do you think it means? Take it. It kind of sounds like take a hike, like take take that stupid question somewhere else. Is that what you're telling me to do right no. now? <laughs> oh, curious. Um, to like uh, enact on those things till you get to the edge and then not go over the edge. 
I don't even know what a would-be is. Take it to the would-be? Take it to the would-be. Oh, the would-be. I get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> two words. Hmm. It could mean anything or nothing. Take it to the would-be. Yeah. Fuck, it's hard. I guess take it to the would-be would mean, like, take it to a place where everything is hypothetical. <laughs> like, what would be? I don't know. That's what I think. So take it to a place where, like, it, it might never exist. Take it to the would-be? Um, I'm taking a big secret in the forest. What would that secret be? Uh, I don't know. I need to, like, take it to the would-be to know. <laughs> right? This is what it means. Yeah, take it to the would-be. One thing that my friends and I talk about is our frustration that more and more digital assistants keep mm -hmm. on coming out. Mm-hmm. And that they are all female. Yes. Which doesn't feel like an accident. It's not an accident. Oh, it's not an accident. Um, and you have the option. My my Siri is now set, I believe, to an Irish male. Mm -hmm. But the default is always a woman and they always have female voices. Yes. Because I think people are more comfortable with the idea of a female digital assistant. But yeah. then you hear a man, you know, yelling, Alexa, shut up. And it you know, it, it puts your teeth on edge. Yeah. Do you have fears about the ways in which gender and race, mm -hmm. sexual orientation, any of these things, how our current biases might play out as we develop more and more AI technology and slot these different types of people into AI roles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have ideas. I'm not going to say fears. Right, I try to stay away from the fears right, in this not, realm. We're not in a dystopian realm. Exactly. We are protopian. But the idea of, right, so often when you think of robots, we're thinking about things that serve us. And who's mostly creating these things? So men, right? Really white men who are mostly creating these things. And it's kind of recreating what the fantasy of what you want from these things are. Right. Which is why I say more and more people need to get involved because we need more conceptions of what the world is and can be making things that look more like what we want. Right. Because right now. That's the idea. It's like some woman who will take care of me, who I can yell at. Right. And where worry comes into it for me is the way in which we're training ourselves to deal with not only these assistants, but each other. Because when you talk to an assistant, especially one that's in your house now, you know, it's not unusual to have to yell at it, right? Right. Um, it's acceptable. Right. It's acceptable. And, and really, it's like after the first time and it doesn't get it, then you, you kind of have to yell at it again. Right. And what does, that, what does it mean to, to be yelling at something to get it to do what you need it to do? What does it mean for that three or four-year-old to be yelling at this thing and ordering it what to do, this female-sounding, service-oriented thing in their lives, right? How does that spread throughout our culture? Mm -hmm. um, how does it change the way that we interact with each other? Hi, my name is Susan Bennett. Uh, I am a singer, voice actor, speaker, and the original voice of Siri. 
I read that you have been a backup singer for, um, I believe, Roy Orbison. Is that right? Yeah, I was on tour with him for two years, and I also sang with Burt Bacharach, and I also sang, uh, did lots of lots of jingles back in the day when they did jingles, and sang backup vocals for a lot of different um, commercial projects. And you also mentioned that you are a voiceover artist, and is that how you uh-huh. landed the gig for Siri? Yes. Although I don't know how it happened because uh, Apple hasn't really disclosed that information of how that particular process uh, happened. Um, I had, uh, through an, an IVR company, which stands for Interactive Voice Response, I had done a lot of that type of recording. So I'm sure that my voice ended up in some sort of <laughs> IVR voice bank. And uh, so it was chosen to be the original voice of Siri. So, so at the time, you didn't know what exactly you were recording for. You were just called in to um, do additional voice recording. Is that right? Well, yeah. And I've talked to other people who have had the same experience. And we were kind of at the very beginning, at the forefront of all of this. And so we didn't know exactly what was going on. Uh, we thought we were just doing generic phone messaging. And uh, and then it turns out that we ended up being characters like Siri and Alexa <laughs> and and things like that. So what did they have you do when they called you in to record? The initial recordings were done in 2005, uh, four hours a day, five days a week for the entire month of July. And what they had me do was read thousands of phrases and sentences that were created just to get all of the sound combinations in the language. And then after the recordings were done, technicians went in with computers, of course, extracted sounds, reformed these sounds into new phrases and sentences. And these are what ended up on our devices as Siri's answers to our questions. And at what point did you realize that you were the voice of Siri? On October 4th, 2011, when Siri appeared on the iPhone 4S, a friend of mine emailed me and said, well, we're playing around with this new iPhone app. Isn't this you? (laughs) and I said what so I listened I went to the Apple site and listened and said oh well yes that's me that's very interesting and so uh yeah it was a surprise and how long were you the voice of Siri um I don't know exactly how long um the voice the sound of the voice changed a bit with the operating system 7 and I haven't been able to really get a, a definitive answer as to whether they just manipulated my voice or whether they used another voice actor. But then with the uh, iPhone X, uh, they definitely went with a different sounding voice. And now basically, unfortunately, I think Siri sounds like all the others. You know, it's really hard to tell the difference between Siri, the Google voice, and um, Alexa. Yeah, how would you describe the current generation of voice assistants, that tone and pitch that you mentioned? Well, I guess you'd have to say it's kind of generic. I mean, they've they've chosen female voices that sound uh, of a certain age. I think they're trying to make the voice sound maybe more casual and not so authoritative, just more friendly. What do you think about the fact that most, if not all, of the major digital voice assistants are female? Well, I don't know. That's really hard to say. I think personally, it seems more natural for to have female voices as um, an assistant in a computer slash phone scenario because, you know, historically, females were always the phone operators. You know, so you you were used to hearing a female voice when you were talking on a a phone. So often people 
can find themselves angry or frustrated with Siri. Have you ever heard someone yelling at Siri? And how does that make you feel? Oh, yeah. yeah, I meet a lot of people who apologize to me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I called you a bad name. I said, yeah, I know, I know where you live. People don't stop to think of what a miracle this whole thing is. Did you have an iPhone when you were the voice of Siri? Um, I had the. I had just gotten the iPhone 4, and so when uh, my voice showed up on the iPhone 4S, I did not run right out and get a, get one, but my husband did. <laughs> what was it like for him talking to Siri with your voice? Oh, he just thought it was really funny. And the very first time that, that um, I think he had the phone next to him in the car, and he made some comment, and, and she would just automatically start talking to him, and he want, that's not what he wanted. He wanted to do something else with the phone, so he just said, would you just go away? And she said, what did I do to deserve that? <laughs> Maybe a little too close to home. Yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. I, I think he found it amusing, whereas I found it very creepy. I, I never talked to Siri when my phone was on the, on the iPhone, when my voice was on the iPhone. It was just a little too much. <laughs> Does your work deal with facial recognition at all? Not yet. It's something that I'm thinking about. Like, so, like, this is a conundrum, right? And I'm really interested in computer vision and, like, facial recognition. But when you think that out and extrapolate once that's out into the culture or in industry, what does that mean on the streets? Because if I make it, it's probably trying to be more open or more inclusive than other systems? Or do I not make it because people haven't made it yet? Although my, I usually, in the end, wind up at the point where, oh, somebody's going to make this down the line. So if there's a way to have some input into the way the system is, and then think about how systems get used like that, that see or do not see folks, um, maybe that's a little better. Mm, you know. It's a problematic table, but <clears throat> you would still like a seat at it. Yeah. What I say mostly is we cannot afford to not be at the table. Right. Because, you know, right now there are people saying, well, no, we should just shut that down. Right. So California, San Francisco, cameras on the streets, computer vision. So the state will set, shut it down or San Francisco won't allow it. Right. But. That doesn't mean all the commerce around doesn't have it, that the police can't go to get from people's ring systems, right, or different systems. So I think we have to have different approaches to these problems and at least have a nice chunk of people who are going into, yeah, I'm going to sit at this table and try to figure out how this thing becomes fair and equitable for people that I love and who look like me because otherwise... Like when it does come along or when it is in broad use, the uses will probably be more detrimental than if I weren't at the table. Sure, because it will have been developed by people who didn't have your best interest in mind. Exactly. Your concerns, your best interest, like anything. Mm -hmm. We know how easily and oddly people do things where they think they're doing something completely right and okay. And other folks are like, how did this get through? Right. Right? Because nobody was in the room nobody. who could have raised a flag. Right. And been like, actually, don't send that black-faced turtleneck down the runway. Exactly. Right? Right. And that's like, oh, but we just didn't think about it. 
It's like, yeah, that's why we need to be figuring out how to work together and have review boards and have transparency and have recourse when the system does something wrong, right? How do you stay so... How do you stay so optimistic about this? I mean, well, I guess you you very consciously have decided I, I am not resigned to a dystopia. Right. But it is terrifying stuff. It's totally terrifying. But the other thing is, I think this is the biggest opportunity ever. Right. Right. Like I, crazy artist, is hanging out at the edge of this technology because nobody knows what's going on right now. Like, I've come to realize that people who are the experts, like, they still are trying to figure it out, which means there's just a lot of space for people to come in and start figuring out, well, this is the way it's being used right now. How do we want to use it? What can we really do with it? And how are we going to help it make society better, more open, more fair? Right? And that's a little Pollyanna, I get it. But it's also like, come on, people. We'll see. Thank you. You're welcome. So much. Stephanie Dinkins, appreciate your time. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this little show of ours. While I've got you, would you take a moment to rate and review Glitter and Doom wherever you get your podcasts? It takes about a moment, but it makes a huge difference. Thanks, and see you next week. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 